Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. It's Sunday, July 10th, 2022. It's summer. Summer. Nice day. Beautiful day. Yeah, but it's, it's warm. It's warm, but it's good. It's good. It's everything you ask for in a summer day. Yes. Except, except that's lost. That's, 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 we could, well, there is that. Yeah. We could use a little rain for the planty poos. Oh, my God. Oh God. We've so much rain, Timson. Oh, it's been a while. It's been a while, dear. What? All right. So, um... I know that Wimbledon is going on. Tour de France is going on. I hear this all from my mother. Right. Okay. It's tough to be lying on your mother's 97 for sports information, and yet you do. It's, uh, it's a little odd, Tamsin. It's a little odd. But she's, uh, you know, she's right about uh, Wimbledon and, and uh, the bike racing. Though she's more interested in the bike racing. But I'm more interested in Wimbledon. We actually saw the women's finals. I haven't watched the women's final match or any women's tennis match for years. And, you know, Wimbledon comes on early. It's convenient. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. you got a few minutes. You can uh, see what's going on. And uh, we did uh, get to see uh, the final between Ons Jabber, who's Tunisian, and Elena Rabakina, who's from Kazakhstan. And I know there's all kinds of intrigue about the fact that uh, Elena Rabakina really was born in Russia, raised in Russia, and now sponsored by Kazakhstan. And it's only by dint of that that she was allowed to play, because the... Uh, the folks at Wimbledon, as pressured as a result of pressure by Boris Johnson, would not allow Russians to play because of the war in Ukraine. But she was allowed to play because she's officially representing Kazakhstan, and it probably didn't please anybody that she won the tournament. Uh, not the way they planned it to go. Wimbledon. Yeah, it's a little ironic. Yeah, that Wimbledon was trying to keep the Russians out, and, and the uh, Russian wins. Russian wins. I, I will say that we did not watch the whole match. No. Okay. Well, I watched we watched thing. a little bit. You watched all of it? No, no. No, you didn't. No, but, you know. We watched a little bit, and uh, the Tunisian woman was uh, um, large and in charge at the beginning. Yes, and I, that's why I was interested. I wanted to see this woman, Owens Jobber. She's very interesting. Uh, she's supposed to be very athletic. She was no, She's number two in the world, higher rank than Elena. And uh, she seemed poised to have her first Grand Slam victory. And it didn't happen. And and when you say large and in charge, she won the first set easily. Yeah. She looked like by far the superior tennis player. I said to myself, Dan's right. This is the woman to watch. Yes. But then it slowly dissolved. And um, it was uh, it was almost a little weird. I mean, she kind of mentally took herself out of the match, it seemed to me. And it was just funny that I had read a couple of articles uh, about her and about coaching. Uh, the day or two before. And you know, the mental side of tennis uh, is apparently substantial, uh, perhaps more than some other sports. The The article about coaches wasn't about jobber so much. It was a, a very much focused, uh, or at least the takeoff point, was a very famous coach named Patrick uh, Moratoglu. Oh, excuse me, Moratoglu. Thank you. Patrick Martoglu, who was uh, for many years, or several years, the coach for uh, Serena Williams uh, during her great successes, um, but no longer the coach there. And uh, she, uh, and, and he now coaches uh, Simona Hallett, 
who's also a, a top player. Um, and what, what uh, keyed the article in the Times was that Simona Halep apparently had what some describe as a panic attack during a match, uh, lost a match she should have won. And, in uh, Wimbledon? No, not, no, not years this before Wimbledon. But okay. she, she actually got knocked down in the semis in Wimbledon, uh-huh. but not because of that. And uh, this coach, coach Patrick Mora-Toglu, uh, published on his own initiative a post which said he took full responsibility. He said, it's my fault. It's not Simona's fault. It's the coach's fault when something like this happens. This is a quote from him. He says, do you think the panic attack comes from the sky? There were signs that this could happen, and I should have anticipated them. Too many coaches say this is not my responsibility, that I do this for the player, and once the match starts, there's nothing that I can do. And then he used some obscenity to sort of reject that hypothesis and said, it's my job to see that things things don't happen. I failed. So During the match? Yeah. He said... But I thought the coaches couldn't... He couldn't. Actually, he's gotten in trouble for coaching during the match. But what he's really saying is... That he should have prepared the player, in this case Halep, in such a way that the panic attack would not happen once the match began. And uh, it's sort of based on the understanding that, you know, a lot of players have a somewhat fragile or at least vulnerable psychological makeup. That psychological makeup is everything or at least very important. And it's uh, the responsibility of somebody, probably the coach, to make sure that the psychological makeup is appropriate for their success regardless of the physical tools. And you couldn't help but think of this when you watched Jobber uh, because something clearly slipped there during that match. And, and, and you were listening to commentators like uh, Chris Everett was the lead commentator. And all she would talk about was Jobber. Jobber's going to win. She does this. The other woman can't do that. And then it was kind of a disappointing, well, she's letting it slip away. And as I read about Jobber, you know, uh, she has uh, quite a bit of advice, advice in this connection. I mean, she has a coach, um, Aisha Jalali, but even more than that, uh, she's been working with a sports psychologist for years, a woman named Melanie Maillard. And apparently, uh, Ong Jabber had some years with only middling success and has more recent success, moving up to number two in the world, which she credits in large part to Maillard to her sports psychologist coach. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I guess that's not, uh, you know, that foundation is not made of concrete and something clearly slipped during that match. Uh, she didn't have the wherewithal to follow it through, or at least not have the wherewithal to recover once things started slipping away. And it's just a reminder how, uh, how big a part tennis psychology is, I suppose. Am I allowed to ask, yeah. are there any men... Who have coaches? Oh, they're more than coaches. The, the issues, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even want to use the word issues because I don't think I don't think it's unusual to have a sports psychologist working with you. I should no. tell you this: the Mets have a sports psychologist. Yeah, no, staff. I'm not. I'm not, not disputing yeah. that. I'm just everybody you've talked about. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the women because we watch the women. Because we're watching yeah, them. and All the right. article in the Times is about the women. And okay, it, and that coach I mentioned is a woman. I mean, coach. we have. Uh, heard of some uh, bad behavior and crazy behavior right uh, amongst the men but, in no, this but that's not it. no no the coach look I I don't look, maybe I, panic attacks manifest themselves in different ways yeah but also it's a different thing with men anyway men's a little more of a finesse game also men's three out of five not two out of three so it's a longer haul I mean uh, it's not like it all turns on a single point in the second set 
so there's a lot of different things, and, and men are a little different than women. I don't, I don't really know. You heard it here first, guys. Men are different than women. We'll come back to that uh, later on. Look, the issue with the men, you know, of course, uh, Djokovic won. Uh, Djokovic was not allowed to play the Australian Open because he's not vaccinated. Wimbledon kept out the Russians, but opened it up to people who are not vaccinated. Djokovic won. The U.S. Open is not open to unvaccinated players. Mm-hmm. Djokovic is not going to be allowed to play the U.S. Open, mm-hmm. which is going to be a big deal. Will Nadal be able to play? Uh, I don't know. He had to withdraw because he had uh, a muscle issue in his stomach. Uh, I don't know. He's got a lot of injuries. I'd say it's 50-50. Uh, hmm. That's in September. I mean, that's just around the corner. So uh, we'll see. But uh, any event, um, it, it was look. It's one thing to read about in the Times, you know, about how important the coaches are and how the coaches, you know, this particular coach accepts responsibility for the mental makeup and the sports psychologist. Besides, but it's another thing to see it on the court. That was not a well played match mm-hmm. by either play. I mean, Elena gained strength as time went on. But it's not like she was super. Uh, and those jobber uh, clearly slowly slipped away. So it was a little disappointing mm. watch. Um, but, uh, you know, whatever. Whatever. Um, so there was an article about um, summer camp, which I thought was kind of interesting, in the journal called The Life Lessons of Summer Camp. Well, Scott, you and I started about our experiences in summer camp. And you yeah, said... This is another one of those nostalgia right. articles for the baby boomers. Right, right. Exactly right. I mean, so this guy <laughs> talks about his experience, a guy named Rich Cohen. And he talks about his experience in a camp uh, in was Wisconsin. And, you know, he still remembers the nicknames of uh, his friends at camp. Uh, which had some funny Indian name, and uh, he was there for five years. They still keep in touch. And he found it even more important than the friendships he made. Uh, the theme you see in articles like this often is it's an important formative experience. And I am, you know, I'm the man I am today, whatever that is, in large part because of the formative experience of going to summer camp. You hear that a lot. Me, what? Meaning that it's uh, you learn a lot at summer camp. It well, makes what do you, you learn besides? Well, that's how the question. To that's the question. Paddle a canoe. Well, I think uh, generally, if one word, what they would say is you learn independence. Because you're not with your parents, right? And back in the day, yeah, you really weren't with your parents. That's right. Communications were cut off. Well, it's completely. If it was an now. emergency, maybe you could make a phone call. The article Mom, says, "Mom, please." Get me home. The article says that you could make a phone call if someone died, <laughs> uh, which I think was the rule in the camp that I was at and worked at. Uh, that, that's pretty accurate, I think. Uh, but you do, you see this once in a while. You, you quote, you know, he refers to Michael Eisner going to a camp like this and crediting the camp for, you know, that kind of formative um, effect on him and that sort of thing. Um and look, every, it's different for everybody and, and, and the camps are different, although he describes his summer camp as you know, somewhat similar to the camps you and I work at. Not exactly the same. The camp well, you I'm, went to camp, but yeah. you also worked at camp. Right. And I, you, I spent you, more did you years work at the same camp you went to? Yeah. Well, okay. I, I went to one camp when I was too young to go to camp. And then when I went to this other camp when I was a little later, I spent a year or two as a camper and then three or four years as a counselor. So most of my experience... Sports-oriented camp. Very sports-oriented. So it's not one of these 
Uh, you're in a canoe all the time. You're camping in the woods. You're making fires. You're not a Boy Scout. You're being but, an Indian. Yeah. But you, your camp was a little more like that. It was a little more rough and ready, wasn't yeah, it? No. It, well, yeah. Mine was more just uh, classic. It wasn't too rough. But uh, <laughs> I, I was counselor. I was yeah. never a camper. Yeah. Okay. But I always dreamed of going to camp. Yeah. And uh, so as soon as I could get a job as a camp counselor, yeah. I did. I, in fact, was... Um, Head counselor of nature and camp crafts. Oh God! At Camp Natimus, mm-hmm. okay, in Pennsylvania, yeah. in the Poconos, right? And um, you know, and I taught them how to camp, how to. Well, did, we, did, we 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 would go on camping trips. We had cabins. You know, everybody stayed right. in a cabin yeah. according to different age groups and so on. But we did have little camping trips, which would be, I guess, you know. Across the meadow right. into the forest or right. something, and you stay in overnight. Tents. In yeah, stay. well, that's something. Yeah, how often did you but we do weren't that? too far away. Even so. and we did our own cooking. I taught them how to cook over right, so fire and fire. so on. So how often? Yeah, did, and we sang songs. How often would you do that? Not too often. That was a big deal. Yeah, that was a big deal. That was a culmination. <laughs> You're dismissive. I think that's a big deal. Uh, well, you know, especially like I wasn't a real. It's not like I came from a camping family. I had no reason. Well, you must have lied it was about one of the, Well, lied, that's lied one of those resume, things. They, right? you, you, you apply for a job and they say, well, we have one opening. It's for nature and camp crafts. Can you do it? And I said, yes, ma'am. That's right. I can do oh, that. I am all about nature and camp crafts. And um, so it was very beautiful. They had a lake. And, yeah. <clears throat> uh, you know, it, uh, it seemed like a great experience. I mean, we, you know, was, we um, had uh, excellent food and... Uh, Movie nights and normal stuff. Uh-huh. And the girls seemed happy. Yeah. And it was, I would say... How old were the girls? Um, they were the usual ages. Like, uh, you know, 8 to um, 12. By the time you're getting over 12, you're like, um, what do they call it? Uh, counselor in training. Yeah, CIT. CIT. Yes. CIT yeah. So there was always like one cabin yeah, right. of CIT yeah. girls who, you know... Yeah. And and their parents their parents didn't want them staying home, but they right. were too old to be right. uh, campers, right. and um, so you know it was uh, it was I would say it was a safe environment. I have no doubts or qualms yeah. about what kind of people were working there and um, how those girls were treated. It was uh, an excellent place. Yeah, yeah. Well, and look, I know that's a big concern now. Well, look, um, I, I think people worry about their children's safety. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to have your children cut off completely um, from, you know, their well, parents. Well, let's, let's slow down for a second. When you say it's hard, I mean, they have to take measures if, if they're interested in cutting people off completely. But I mean, it's harder, I think, for even the parents yeah. psychologically sure. to be totally away from the well, kids. Well, I heard that some of these camps, according to this article, will send pictures to the parents by email saying, here's your kid having a good time playing tetherball or whatever. Yeah. You know, in the, in yeah, which they that, do at daycare But they do at daycare for Hazi. Yeah. Right? It's, it's right. Like, everyone's at daycare. But, uh, so, I, you know, so my camp, the camp I worked at was um, sports camp. Mm-hmm. Mostly, you know, basketball, softball, that kind of thing. And uh, not much in the way of camping. They had a lake, so there was a little swimming. Um, but it's very, you know, competitive athletically, um, or at least somewhat competitive. And uh, I, you know, no issues in the, in the way of, you know, creepy stuff, about kids being treated poorly or anything like that. But um, in terms of formative experience and independence, independence to me is a funny word because 
to me, it, it, it was a form of experience in the sense that you take yourself out of your normal environment and you're thrust in a different environment and you see how you thrive in a way that travel is a form of experience. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's positive. But independence is a funny word because when you're in camp, it's about codependence. Uh, to me, the adjustment was there's no privacy in camp. Uh, you're constantly surrounded by people. You're constantly surrounded by campers or peers or whatever. You're sleeping in a bunk with 12 people. There's no time truly Right, alone. so that's you're, one of the things the group. you learn to deal with. That's right. But so, also you have no advocate. I don't think you need an advocate. I, I don't think that's it. In, in, in everyday life you do. Your parents are no, always there to no. stand up for you. I don't, you have a teacher. Um, counselors are, you know... Somewhat in charge, but they're not. It's not like a a teacher. It's well, not like a real authority yeah, look, figure. I guess you I'm have talking about my own miscellaneous experience. teenagers okay. who are good at baseball, so they you know Listen, are I, a counselor I, at a baseball. Game. My own experience. I, I wasn't looking for an advocate. I mean, the adjustment for me was no, but I yeah you You're constantly you wouldn't other be. But um, for kids, there is this sense of independence because you are alone there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, then it comes to the counselors. And you, you seem very positive in terms of your co-counselors at this camp. Uh, you know, the impression I get when I hear you talking about it was that they were all very responsible and uh, mindful of their charges, of the campers or whatever. And I will say that, uh, and I was uh, a group head counselor myself in my last year at this camp. Uh, I found the staff extremely uneven, okay? They weren't uh, negative in terms of inflicting anything in the kids. But a lot of them didn't give a, give, didn't give give a, hoot. a, a hoot about anything with the kids. And as, as a head counselor, I was constantly just saying, hey, wake up, buddy. You know, do your job. Do this. Do this. Oh, really? And I had to yeah. say that a lot. And I mean, I, I didn't have to say it twice, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, not because I'm such a hard guy, but because... It wasn't too far from the surface. They understood that was their responsibility. But they had to be reminded a lot. It didn't come naturally to a lot of these guys. Mm -hmm. So, and maybe that's because it was sports. Maybe because it's boys. Maybe, you know. And frankly, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, Lord of the Flies. When you put <laughs> when you put 200 boys together and you say we're going to compete all summer. So, so your camp was just boys? No. Well, yes and no. It was a boys camp. Uh, but there was a girls' camp just across the way. They were really under one ownership. I mean, we were linked to a boys' camp, yeah. but it was not. You see, it the was girls, like fifteen minutes away. You see the the girls at girls' camp at night uh, when there was a social. Yes, and and more importantly, and that would happen once a week. They say, but for the counselors, you would see the girl counselors, I mean, the boy and girl counselors. Yes, that was an excitement. Yes, that was an excitement. Well, it was exciting for the girls, you know. But you know. Well, let me ask you about this. What? Uh, camp wars. Yeah, we had color war. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that has any value or? Yeah. I mean, uh, yes. I, I think, let me put it this way. Um, it it really attracted the interest of the kids. It raised the level of, of their intensity with respect to their investment in the games they were playing and the competitions they were having. Right. So they were playing in their mind very meaningful games. Right. And I think whenever you have that kind of ardent competition, you get something out of it. Not all these kids are destined to play high school basketball. Or mm -hmm. high school baseball. Yeah. But this is their chance to, you know, to, to be a bat in a critical point, to be playing a basketball game with a lot of people watching and a lot on the line. Uh, so I think people get something out of that, sure. Yeah. Did you have, like, uh, 
you know, singing competition. Yeah, we had a they, singing yeah, competition there, at the end. It would be the big. Uh, yeah, and people would go you know, crazy Some council about would write a song. Oh yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it would, and who was the best? Yeah, no, but it was they, they wouldn't. They would write lyrics to existing songs. Right, right. right. Like the Star Spangled Banner. No, no, no. Like, so, like, like old. No, no, no. I mean, like it's an old tradition. It's an old, okay. The that we, we revealed is that way. Yeah. But they would do a song like to get ready. Yeah. You, you don't get ready. The temptation song. Right. The Here I come. Yeah. I can give you the words for Camp Oxford. Right That's now okay. If you That's to. okay. Perhaps another time. Yeah. But uh, we did yeah. That. And the kids would get so in. It was the last event. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in a sense, what about in. the um, it, uh, one uh, situation I was in? There would be in the dining halls a staged fight. Yes, between that's the way, two counselors. That's the way you start color You know, right. Yeah, that's, that's the way it starts. Exactly. Oh, yeah, I can't okay. believe you did the same thing. And everybody say, what's going on? And the kids in particular, the and younger kids would go, kids what's going on? Oh, my on? God. Oh and they say, God. that's it. And then they would say, you know, I'm far as I'm concerned, the blue team, you know, it's blue all the way for me and blah, 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 blah. And the other guy say, no, it's got to be gray. It's got to be gray. And everybody would erupt and someone would yell, color war. And then people go running around like, you know, chickens with their heads cut off. Yeah, yeah. Kids would go crazy. All right, so give us um, the kids something to uh, belong to. Yeah, but it's not. It, it, but it's not. It doesn't work for everybody. No, it, it doesn't. I mean, at least in your situation, probably there was a, um, to some extent, self-selection. In terms of whether they signed up for camp or not. Yeah, it's a sports camp. Yeah. So yeah. they know they're going to be playing sports. Except, you know. Except sometimes your parents are saying, well, this will be good for him. He'll learn some sports. Yeah, let me let me, let me me put it out of the way, but you're exactly right. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't consider myself a great athlete, but I was a good enough athlete that I was comfortable all the time at camp. Uh, if you weren't that good an athlete, you could be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So. But, you know, there's stuff to be learned. You know, when I say independence, codependence, look, what you learn... Is dealing with other people. It doesn't give you independence, but it learns to deal no with other people. And it's no small thing. No, it's no small thing. It's no thing. small thing, you know, um, at these ages, yeah. spending the night away from your family. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it yeah. can be exciting, but it can be pretty scary just to be... Well, not, the, not by the time you're a counselor. Not by the time you're a counselor, but the, I'm talking about the campers. Yeah, the young kids, yeah. That's, that's a, yeah. a tricky thing to learn. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, well, so anyway, it's, camp is no longer the same, but uh, maybe people are still learning something. Well, they, they're trying And also to... the real problem is it's the the cost of camp has become astronomical. Well, you know something? The cost was higher, high then. And... Yeah, but a lot of middle class kids went to camp. And I think they now still they, no, they make so? a point in this article saying that... Um, They've actually, it used to be, you know, you'd sign up for eight weeks or whatever. You'd be there the whole summer. Now it's like anyway from one week to two, three, or four max mm-hmm. because it's just uh, prohibitive. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Um, I don't know if our, our grandchildren will go to camp. they got some time to figure it out. They'll go to Camp Yaya. <laughs> Yaya meaning uh, grandma. Yeah. The uh, there was an article about the Mets. First of all, you mentioned the Mets. We have to give a salute to uh, Keith Hernandez. Keith Hernandez, number seventeen. They retired number seventeen at uh, City Field. And yeah. it was a whole big ceremony, and I listened to a few minutes of it um, beforehand, and it was uh, terribly boring. I mean, it was unbelievably <laughs> awful. Uh, you know, it's kind of it's hokey and it's kind of amateurish, and he's riding around in a golf cart. 
but it's it's at that level that those kind of baseball events uh, exist. And uh, they got a good crowd. Yes, they did get it, and that's what it's all about, honey. Right. That's what yes. it's all about. That's why you know, they say, you know, the Yankees, they're so tradition-bound, and yet they've retired so many numbers. You know why? Because the Yankees figured out to get 50,000 people when you retire a number. Because there yeah. are 50,000 people who like right. that guy. And, uh, of course, uh, Keith Hernandez, apart from being a successful player for the Mets, has been an, a very engaging announcer for the Mets for the 15 I know you love years. him. Yeah, love him. I think he's very good. Okay. I like Ron Darling, too. But they're not going right. to retire his number. So there was, there was an article about the Mets, too, about, in particular, Tyler McGill, or Tyler McGill's family. Tyler is a pitcher for the Mets. And his brother is also a pitcher for the Major League. His brother, Trevor, uh, they're both in their uh, mid-20s or so, 26 and 28. And um, the family is an athletic family, uh, Long Beach, California, the mother being uh, Julie McGill. Uh, and... Uh, they said, and she's, she's asked why they're so athletic. Well, her husband, Kevin, rode at uh, UCLA. Really? The kids are tall. Uh, Tyler and Trevor, 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, they have a daughter. who's 5'11", rode at USC. And uh, it was inevitable that these kids were going to be in some kind of sports. They played sports growing up. They clearly were athletically, athletically gifted. But apparently they were a little bit driven. Uh, and here's the quote I wanted to bring to your attention. Uh, and by the way, she says some very nice thing about Queens, even though she's from California, which is nice. Um, but uh, they asked her whether the kids, you know, they pushed the kids when they were young. Uh, and, you know, they point to all the trophies she has in her house. Um, and she says, well, I only saved the first place trophies. Quote, second place kind of all went in the trash. We're not playing for snacks. Woo! <laughs> How's that? All right. That's right. Next time I see Tyler McGill on the mound, I know we're in good hands. Because this is not a guy he's who's not playing, playing for snacks. For snacks. I, I, you know, I think we ought to Speaking of snacks. Spread that word through the grandchildren. Not playing for snacks. Speaking of snacks. Yes, go ahead. Article in the New York Times. Uh, first a pandemic, then wildfires, and now it's raining anchovies. That's the way it normally goes. And uh, it's a story about uh, a family... Uh, that woke up one night, or they weren't asleep, but it was like 8 o'clock at night, and all of a sudden there were these loud noises of things crashing into their roof. And uh, they they live, uh, you know, near San Francisco. And uh, it turned out it was anchovies. Yes. It was raining anchovies. Um, I mean, it did seem like a plague. It seemed, you know, it did seem pretty uh, biblical. I'm not even sure these people were Jewish. Um, but uh, it turns out, that this is a banner year for anchovies, okay? A lot of anchovies. Apparently, a few years ago, um, there was a um, marine heat wave that ended around 2016. Yeah. And ever since then, mm-hmm. okay, the population of anchovies off the California coast has been exploding. Yes. Okay. You can't have too many anchovies. Uh, which is great. For, uh, you know, the... Um, Pizza industry. Well, yeah. it's great for the predators. Yes. Birds, sea lions, and whales yeah. who feast on them. So not only is it raining the... You, you want to know why it rains anchovies? No, I want... You're going to give me what they tell you in the article, and then I'm going to critically evaluate the explanation. Go ahead. What do okay. they say in the article? It's because yeah. the various birds, pelicans, or whatnot, 
are scooping up the anchovies to take them back to the nest. Yeah. And they can only carry so many, yeah. and they drop them. Right. Okay. That's what they say in the article. And yes. They, and they offer it like they say, there's an obvious explanation. Here it is. It's simple. And I'm saying, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. If I was sitting in a house, and I'm not saying one anchovy drops down, but it's raining anchovies, and okay. I'm going to say, oh, the birds, you know, they can hardly keep the anchovies in their mouth. I'm saying, well, I, sometimes they fight. You know, with their mouths full of the anchovies, and they drop more. These are all theories. No one's seen any fighting. The point point is this. There's been birds, there's been anchovies for years and years. I've been living in a house, I haven't heard a single anchovy drop on my roof for 20 years. Now it's raining anchovies, and someone says, it's the birds. They're dropping the anchovies. Here's the other thing that happens. What? The humpback whales, yeah. you know, when they're Spout them out. snacking, yeah. okay, they get together in groups yeah. of like four or five, yeah. and they close in yeah. on the anchovies and kind of force them, they end up forcing them like towards the shore. They have nowhere to go. So there's these huge swaths yeah, of the, piles of anchovies just washing up on the, the shore. Subject. What does that have to do with the rain? But it's another thing that happens in in the anchovy. I I am telling you that I am rejecting the theory of the article that the raining anchovies has to do with anchovies falling out of the mouths of birds. I think that is a complete non-explanation. No, but that's one way the birds get all these anchovies. All these anchovies are washing up. The birds hop down, (laughs) fill up, go off into the sky, you know, and they drop a few. Nonsense. They talk about a crazy theory. I guess that's possible, but it's not one or two anchovies. It's raining anchovies. It's a brief glimpse into the wonders of ocean life. <laughs> Do you believe it? You obviously believe this story. You think that that's an explanation for why it's raining anchovies. You're sitting in your house. You hear the pitter patter of something. You think it's raining. You say, wait a minute, that sounds different. What do you think? There's it's some raining. cloud of anchovies in I the sky? I don't have the explanation, but it's a little bit worrisome if fish are raining down on my roof. And I am not going to accept someone saying, eh, it's probably dropped out of the Yeah, you know, It's birds. in California. Yeah, right. You know the California people, right? <laughs> okay? Yeah. yeah. All right. Meaning? So, I just, that's all I'm going to say. All right. All right. All right, fine, fine, fine. I think uh, things happen in California that probably don't happen in the rest. Of that's the world. my point. That's okay. my point. There's biblical implications here. It's, this is not the last we've heard of this. Um, so there's an article with a headline that's sort of a grabber: "Modern computing still relies on ancient languages." And I'm saying to myself, "Modern computing, ancient languages." It sounds like a Dan Brown novel, doesn't it? I mean, it, it sounds kind of crazy. Okay, and? Well, it turns out their idea of an ancient language is a computer language that was used 50 years ago. Uh, and they're talking pretty much about COBOL. Uh, according to this article, um, COBOL is, was the language that was used in uh, computer mainframes uh, that were useful uh, for technology at big banks, insurance companies, government agencies, and other large institutions, um, developed literally 50 years ago. A lot of the technology then coming out of, according to this article, the Apollo moon missions. And uh, as a matter of fact, some of this technology found itself, again, according to the article, in iPhone software. Uh, why is this uh, significant? Yeah. It's significant why? because... Um, it hasn't changed. It turns out, as they say in the article, in the great computer maxim, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. 
So it's still quite important. Uh, And therefore, if one has a knowledge of these ancient languages and hasn't developed an expertise in more recent languages like Python, you're still highly employable. Uh, you're still valuable okay. because in order to work on uh, these systems, when in fact they need work, you need someone who is experienced and adept at using COBOL. Which is just weird because in right. general, if you are familiar with something that's outdated, Dated, you're out of luck. You can't get a job. But here they're saying there are a lot of people who know recent languages, but they don't know the language we need, which is the one that was in All place right. 50 so years good. ago. So as a result, they say the typical salary for a COBOL programmer jumped 44% in the past year. All right. Well, perhaps you should call... All computer programs. Call your brother. Well, you know, I'm sure Bob knows COBOL. Uh, And others do, too. We we know a lot of computer programmers. But it it is kind of intuitive to think that knowledge of of a computer language that people don't write anymore uh, would be so important. So there's so much about computers that's of no use. Yeah. From 50 years ago. And this is. Or even 40 years ago, or even 20 years ago. Listen, I'm surprised. And here's something new. I'm surprised that uh, all this uh, technology still relies on an ancient language. You uh, know, there was uh, a recently, um, I was looking at the um, PAW, the Princeton mm-hmm. Alumni Magazine. Yes. Okay, and they had all these pictures and pictures of the uh, reunions right. and what's called the P Raid, the big parade where all the uh, alumni march around. And if it's a big year, they'll have um, uh, posters, they'll have placards, right. you know, with... Uh, Little sayings or something. Yeah. And uh, for one of them, it was like the class of 72 or something, it said, uh, uh, I saved my thesis on a floppy disk. Oh, okay. okay. So it's supposed to be, Wow. <laughs> How primitive was that? Yeah. That's so long ago. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the kind of... Yes. Yes. Uh, I don't even think it was a class of 72. I it think would it was have been a, later. Then. It was a later class. Yes, it was yeah. a much later class. It's class 72. Because they hadn't even... Have had the floppy Yeah, disk. we didn't know. We had like the, the, the cards. Center. We had the cards, yeah. yes. Ooh. Yes. No. You're giving away our age. So, there, so finally, I'm going to show you something from the New York Times, which is the Declaration of Independence. The Times published the Declaration of Independence in full in the back of the news section this week. On July 4th? That's the funny thing about it. Look at the date. July 5th. Yeah. It's July 5th. And yeah. you say to yourself, okay, uh, I can I, I can understand why it might be considered a good idea to publish the Declaration of Independence in connection with the independence of the country. But that's July 4th. Why did they publish it on July 5th? Mm-hmm. It turns out this is a story. Uh, the Times has published uh, the, the Declaration this way uh, every year for about the last 80, 90 years. Mm-hmm. On July 4th, and this year, they forgot. (laughs) It's true. They forgot. Who forgot? They forgot. And, of course, the New York Post had a big story about it, and they they called the Times on it and said, well, how come this on the 5th or the 4th? And they said, uh, quote, human error. (laughs) Oh, baby. Somebody got in trouble. I mean, there's no comment here. They do it without comment. And yeah, I just see something saying, well, we're, do we, is this something we normally do on July 4th? Oh! <laughs> just publish. Nobody will know. Nobody will know. Put on the 5th. Well, they forgot. That's hilarious. It All is. Right. Uh, yeah. So, 
So we all forget things. There's a cautionary tale there somewhere. Okay, so that's all we have uh, today. Uh, we're right on time, of course, because that's the way we are on July 10th. This is uh, Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger with Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. See hey. you next week. See you next week.